0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. It is unearthed time. We are taking our annual look back at things that were literally or figuratively unearthed in 2017. We know these are technically coming out in 2018. (laughs) We waited till the very end so all of 2017 could happen. Uh, That's actually false because... (laughs) I'm trying to cover. (laughs) Um, We're recording these on December 12th, but my review of the Unearthed Pinterest board where we keep track of all this took place on December 6th and 7th. So there's always this little gap, but this is a bigger gap than normal, so... I'm just going to hope that nothing huge happens between now and the end of the year. Also, there are 625 pins on that Pinterest board as of December 7th, compared to 443 on the 2016 board. So we're not going to talk about all 625 things. I feel like if we did that, we could have a whole other podcast that's just unearthed things. That is a thing that could happen, but like... Uh, like then, it would have to be retrospective the year before, yeah. Play out o- over the course of a year, and then we start again. But woo, would be really difficult. We want to talk about other stuff. We do, uh, and then also this is a uh, this is a, a a part of our year end review because it's it's basically part of how we keep ourselves on schedule through the holidays. So. That's why that is. Um, So, but if you do want to go look at all, all 625 pins, they're at Pinterest.com slash Missed in History, and they're on the Unearthed in 2017 board. And you can also see the past few years of boards if you would like to. One other little caveat at the top of this, there were whole collections of documents related to Mata Hari and to the assass- assassination of John F. Kennedy this year that were declassified. We are not really getting into either of those uh, maybe in the new year we will have time to actually look at those documents in a thorough way, but we have not yet, so that's why we're not talking about them. In today's episode, we have anticlimactic headlines, shipwrecks, medical fines, and some collections that we are calling. How'd that get there? And we told you so, uh, along with a couple of past episode updates. And the next time we will have some thefts, repatriations, stuff people found in their own collections exhumations, and some edibles and potables, along with a few other assorted tidbits. First, anticlimactic headlines, which are stories that really had people buzzing this year, but then they didn't turn out to be all that earth-shaking. We're going to start with an update from Unearthed in July, which was the exhumation of H.H. Holmes, a.k.a. Herman Mudgett, whose murder castle became an infamous part of the 1893 World's Fair and is also covered by an episode in the Archive. Holmes was reported to have been hanged and buried in Pennsylvania in 1896, but this year his remains were exhumed to settle longstanding speculation about whether that body was really his, and that's what we talked about back in July. In spite of a court order specifying, quote, no commercial spectacle or carnival atmosphere shall be created either by this event or any other incident pertaining to the remains, all this played out on a History Channel series called American Ripper. Uh, In that uh, series, Mudgett's great-great-grandson Jeff offered up his own DNA for comparison. Also part of the show was Jeff Mudgett's hypothesis that his great-great-grandfather had, in the years before turning his own home into a murder castle, lived in London and carried out the Jack the Ripper murders. Mudgett has detailed this hypothesis in a TEDx talk and a book called Bloodstains as well. It's based on a couple of journals that he says he inherited from his great-great-grandfather, which describe murders that were committed in London. So, after the dramatic exhumation through a layer of concrete that Herman Mudgett had requested before his death to try to deter body thieves, uh, DNA and skeletal evidence confirmed that the remains were his. In other words, H.A. Holmes did not escape execution and fake his own death, his great great grandson still maintains that he was Jack the Ripper, though. Uh, people also got really excited about a colossal statue of Pharaoh Ramses II, aka Ramses the Great, who died in 1213 BCE. The 26 foot quartzite statue was found submerged in groundwater in a Cairo neighborhood. So that on its own is pretty dramatic, but further examination suggests that it is definitely not Ramses II. It's the way less famous and more recent King the I, who ruled from 664 to 610 BCE, Samtec is known for bringing stability to Egypt after decades of turmoil, but he is not nearly as famous as Ramses II. It's still a really large statue, though, and it might be notable as a late-period find because of its size, but it is not the headline-making Ramses the Great. And, as happens just about every single year, a new headline about Amelia Earhart made the rounds. This time it was photographic proof, air-quoting proof, that Earhart and her navigator Fred Noonan survived a crash landing and were then taken captive by the Japanese. Although this photo got a whole lot of headlines, calling it, quote, conclusive proof, it was really not a lot to go on at all. The figure that was supposed to be Earhart was not even facing the camera, and the face that was supposedly Noonan's was deeply shadowed. And speculation that this shape in the background was her plane boiled basically down to, well, it's about the same size as the plane. Without trying to make light of Amelia Earhart's death, when I first saw the photo, it made me think of Bigfoot. (laughs) 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 Because it looked so much like the grainy photos you see that prove that there is uh, Sasquatch. It definitely felt like grainy conspiracy theorist footage. Yeah, so things got even more doubtful. A couple days after History Channel aired its Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence, when a Japanese military history buff published a blog post saying he'd found a copy of that photo published in a book. And that book came out in 1935, two years before Amelia Earhart vanished in 1937. So even before this blog post came out, a number of news outlets started updating their conclusive proof stories and air quotes with some skeptical rebuttals. Uh, and these rebuttals, a lot of them had their own problems. They were mainly coming from Richard Gillespie at the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, or TIGAR, which has been the mounting expeditions to look for signs of Earhart since 1989. TIGAR is the source for most of the new, in quotation marks, Earhart theories that don't pan out, which seem like they come out every every year uh, really often they're about artifacts that we already know about and have already talked about a lot of times. They're like, now we think the makeup makeup pot means this. Uh, much to my chagrin, an article that I shared on our Facebook that was a, a pretty conservative, skeptical read on this whole photo after the fact was updated with extensive quotes from Richard Gillespie. And I was like, wait a minute. Maybe they're just trying to make sure they feed us end-of-year material. Maybe so. That's that's really their (laughs) whole plan. (laughs) We've gotten a couple of emails from people over the years that are angry that we even talk about anything that that they're doing. Yeah. With the makeup pots and the couple of bones and all of that. (laughs) In an event that we talked about so much on social media that we thought we'd already covered it on the show, Salvador Dali's body was exhumed for a paternity test on July 20th. Maria Pilar Abel Martinez reported that her mother told her she had had an affair with Dali in 1955, the year before Martinez was born. Martinez has been publicly claiming that she was Salvador Dali's daughter since 2007. So the first big news to come from this exhumation was that when they opened the coffin, Dali's trademark mustache was still excellently groomed and in pristine condition, so that made a lot of news. And then on September 6th, the Gala Salvador Dali Foundation announced that the results were in. Dali was not Martinez's father. A Madrid court confirmed the announcement on the 18th. So after all that, no. That would make me sad if I thought I was Salvador Dali's child and then found out I wasn't. But this uh this whole cycle of stories made people a lot of people angry in a number of ways on our Facebook. One of the ways was um that a a another publication used the word painter in the headline and uh, so people got really mad. Yeah. And then people got really mad at her and called her all kinds of names and I was like, man, just like if I grew up with my mother having told me that this famous artist was my father, I probably would want to know if that was true or not. <laughs> yeah. It's complicated, right? Uh, To move on, seven-year-old Matilda Jones pulled a sword from a lake in Cornwall, the same lake where, according to legend, King Arthur threw Excalibur to return it to the Lady of the Lake before he died. People ran with the idea that we should make this little girl queen, but uh, the sword is definitely not King Arthur's. It's only 20 or 30 years old, and it is probably a film prop. In similar news, a sphinx head was unearthed in the California desert in December, but it was not evidence of some kind of ancient Egyptian presence in California. I similarly saw a lot of headlines that were like, Egyptian sphinx unearthed in California. (laughs) And they were not from, you know, tabloids. This is a plaster of Paris set piece that was used in the 1956 film The Ten Commandments. And according to Hollywood lore, Cecil B. DeMille had the Exodus set from the movie buried in the desert because it was too expensive to remove it. But it was also of such excellent quality that leaving it there would invite rival filmmakers to use it for their own movies. So it's part of film history, but it's not evidence that there was another group of people in ancient times. No. <laughs> no. Uh, before we move on, which uh, is going to be to shipwrecks, we're going to pause for a little sponsor break. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging.
1: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner man. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details.
0: Shipwrecks are always a listener favorite, so we're going to talk about a few. An incredibly well-preserved 1800-year-old shipwreck was found off the coast of Spain's Balearic Islands. This is in part of the Western Mediterranean that only has a few intact shipwrecks. Uh, we we talk a lot of times about huge collections of hundreds or even thousands of shipwrecks found in other parts of the Mediterranean, but this is a part where it's not not nearly as frequent. This particular ship contained between 1,000 and 2,000 ancient Roman jars, still basically where they were when the ship went down. These clay jars probably contain fish sauce that had been mass-produced in Spain and Portugal. Mm. (laughs) Mmm. Thousands of years old Mm. fish sauce. It might be delicious. I don't know. These jars are a variety known as amphorae, and the wreck was discovered after fishers in the area started finding pieces of amphorae in their nets. I think that might excite me if I were fishing as I, my job. It would me. <laughs> I cut fish and something really cool. Underwater teams working at the wreck of the Dutch East India ship Roosvik, uh, which I'm just going to say that's probably how that's pronounced. Uh, they found a mysterious chest. This ship sank off of Kent in 1740. And as of late August, the chest had not been opened yet. And this is leading to a lot of speculation about whether it is a bona fide treasure chest or something really boring like ledgers. <laughs> <laughs> like a pile of dresses. Duty rosters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to find the answer to that just yet. So it still remains... Uh, a magical zone of speculation. Uh, But the rest of the ship has its own wealth of treasures, including cannons, fine glassware, and a bunch of Mexican silver dollars. A bronze arm was brought up from the Antikythera shipwreck this year, where there are at least seven more statues still submerged. This arm was actually outside of the wreck itself. It was under sediment on the slope where the ship came to rest on the seafloor feel like you can't have an Unearthed without a little Antikythera talk. I know. There's going to be stuff coming up from that shipwreck as as people are able to get to it, because it's kind of treacherous. Next year, maybe we'll have a big, fat update on it. Uh, and Britain also announced that it would give Canada the wrecks of Franklin's expedition, which we've talked about on Unearthed previously. The U.K. Ministry of Defense officially transferred ownership to Parks Canada, although Britain did hang on to a few of the artifacts. That announcement cracked me up a little bit. <laughs> Because uh, I mean, I I understand it. I understand what's happening here, but the like the their shipwrecks in the water in Canada. How are you going to send them back? (laughs) Yeah, you can have that thing that's on your property and unmovable. You can have that. That's fine. Uh, To move on to medical finds, a multidisciplinary team investigated a strain of leprosy, now known as Hansen's disease, that was found in a hospital cemetery in Winchester, United Kingdom. This study used radiocarbon dating, biomolecular analysis, genotyping, and other methods to examine remains from the 11th and 12th centuries. One set of remains in the cemetery is from somebody outside of Britain, and so the team concluded that it probably belonged to a religious pilgrim. And then the majority of remains in the cemetery, more than 80% of them, showed signs of advanced Hansen's disease. These remains all tie into multiple questions about Hansen's disease. How do the strains of the disease that were common in the past relate to the strains that exist today? And how did religious pilgrimage affect the spread of the disease in the medieval world? The second question is still being examined, but when it comes to the first, the M. leprae genome hasn't changed very much since the prevalence of Hansen's disease peaked in Europe. So it's possible that its eventual decline was thanks in part to increasing genetic resistance. The oldest known prostate stones were unearthed in a cemetery in Sudan this year. The 12,000-year-old stones were discovered in 2013, but the findings weren't published in Plus One until this year. Prostate stones are fairly common, but typically they tend to be small and asymptomatic, apart from potentially contributing to urinary tract infections. But the specimens found in this Sudanese grave were the size of walnuts, which would have been incredibly painful. They're so large that you might wonder if they were literally anything else, but analysis confirmed that they formed in a prostate gland, so... A little bit gross, a whole lot of yikes. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those, uh, you look at them and kind of go, maybe that's, maybe it's a rock. Maybe it's a rock that happens to be where this body, no, it's not a rock. Researchers uncovered what may be the world's first ever example of dental fillings. These teeth, there were two of them, were found at the Rapparo Fridan site in Italy and they're about 13,000 years old. Both teeth have holes drilled into them that extend into the pulp, and then these holes are filled with tar-like bitumen. The researchers speculated that the holes may have been for some purpose other than dentistry, perhaps to attach jewelry to the teeth or for some other cosmetic reason. But the fact that the holes are filled with bitumen suggests that it was an attempt to treat tooth decay. And there are other examples of tooth modifications that suggest some kind of dental work dating even earlier. But this is the first known filling, which also would have been done without effective anesthesia and probably with a rock. So once again, yikes. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of our medical unearthings are yikes territory. Researchers at the University of Exeter are challenging the widely held assumption that medieval Europe assumed infertility only affected women. Although religious writings on infertility generally focused on women, historian Dr. Catherine Ryder found references to infertility in men in medical texts from the 13th through the 15th centuries. Now, this did not mean that they otherwise had any sort of clue what they were talking about, though. One test for diagnosing which partner was infertile involved a man and a woman each urinating into a separate pot of bran, and then the one that grew worms in it belonged to the infertile partner. (laughs) I feel like every paragraph I get to read is the yikes paragraph. You you (laughs) did wind up on yikes rotation. Uh, We're going to move on to our next category of finds, which we are calling How'd That Get There? A work crew in Old Quebec found a live cannonball... (laughs) Uh, It dates back to the Battle of the Plains of Abraham in 1759, but before anybody knew that this thing was live, they took it out of the ground, they gathered around it for a photograph, then they contacted archaeologist Serge Rouleau, who, still not knowing that it was a live cannonball, took it home. Once he realized what he had, uh, he contacted a team of army munitions experts who came to neutralize it. Uh, Do you ever read the TSA blog? This will sound like I'm going on a tangent, but it's germane. Sure. So they often, they do like a weekly report of everything they've had to confiscate. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend it because, well, it's unsettling, but you would be shocked at how many times people dig something out of the ground and then are like, I'm going to take this home as a souvenir. And the TSA is like, that's a live grenade. (laughs) (laughs) Similarly, there have been cannonballs that have shown up where they're like, that is a live cannonball that people just had in like their carry-on luggage there. Yeah. That's terrifying. It is indeed. A 400-year-old embellishment bearing a Tudor rose was found near the Kremlin. It's five centimeters in diameter and made of tin and lead, and based on the positions of four holes, it was probably used as an adornment for clothing. It may seem odd for a 400-year-old Tudor rose, complete with engraved motto for the British monarch, Dieu et mon droit, to be in Moscow, But the location where it was found used to be home to the first English trading and ambassadorial office there. I like how most of these things that I filed under How'd That Get There have a logical reason why they're there, but it's still surprising at first glance. A large marble container brought to Blenheim Palace by the 5th Duke of Marlborough has turned out to be a Roman coffin. The Duke brought the coffin, not knowing it was a coffin, to the palace in the 19th century... And in the years since then, it was used both as a water feature and as a planter. It's also a pretty eye-catching one. It's carved with a drunken Dionysus at a party with mostly naked revelers. Which makes me wonder whose coffin it was. Somebody <laughs> probably pretty fun. Uh, by total coincidence, an antiquities dealer visiting the palace identified it as a sarcophagus, at which point they brought it inside to protect it from the elements. From there, it was sent for a more detailed restoration. And last up, probably the most surprising of all of these, Cruz restoring a church in Spain discovered that an 18th century priest had found an interesting place to leave his letter to the future inside Jesus' buttocks. <laughs> uh, Chaplain Joaquin Minguez wrote the letter in 1777, basically making a little time capsule for what life was like at the time, and then he put it into the buttocks of a statue of Jesus. Which is odd, because you would think he would not anticipate that people would ever find it there. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, unless he just predicted, like, the (laughs) people of the future are just going to be horrible and (laughs) completely disrespectful. Uh, While we wax Rhapsodic on the complete disrespect of the future that he may or may not have believed people (laughs) would have, we're going to pause and have a little break for a sponsor. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at HowLifeUnfolds.com slash Papertarian.
1: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you will get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
0: We are moving on to the category I made up called We Told You So. We here does not mean Holly and I told you so. It means whoever was telling historians and archaeologists, things. <laughs> Someone had knowledge <laughs> right. that maybe wasn't being considered. Yes. So these are all things that have confirmed something that people had already been saying for anywhere from decades to centuries. First up, after being given a homework assignment on World War II, 14-year-old Daniel Rahm Christensen's father made a wild suggestion, which is that he should find the German plane that had, according to family lore, crashed on the family's land in northern Denmark during World War II. Daniel's grandfather was known for telling tall tales, and since no one had found this plane during the decades of plowing their farmland that had happened, everybody had basically come to believe that his story of a World War II plane crash was really just a joke. But Daniel and his father went out with a metal detector, and they found not only the plane, but also likely the remains of the pilot. They contacted local authorities, and soon a local and soon a forensic specialist and a bomb disposal unit were on the property to secure the wreckage. They also had a visit from the German embassy. So, Granddad was telling the truth. I like that he got vindicated. Uh, a British expatriate living in Japan has at least tentatively confirmed a long-dismissed story about British Australians' first contact with Japan. The story goes that in 1829, convicted men aboard the Cyprus mutinied off the coast of Tasmania, with former sailor William Swallow leading the uprising and taking command of the ship. From there, they sailed on to New Zealand, Japan, and southern China. The men were eventually captured, taken back to England, tried, and hanged. And even though they were consistent in their story that they'd been in Japan, nobody believed them. Japan's borders were closed off to most foreign visitors at this point, and later examinations of Japanese records didn't mention the Cyprus. But then, English teacher Nick Russell stumbled onto a watercolor of a ship sailing under a British flag in an online archive. And this led him to a story about a ship anchoring off Shikoku Island in 1830 and a record of samurai Makita Hamaguchi visiting the ship to check it for weapons. So some of this is definitely preliminary, but so far there are experts in Japan and Australia who have weighed in and agreed that Russell might have finally proved that these mutineers were not making the whole thing up. DNA analysis has confirmed that indigenous Australians have lived in the same parts of Australia for as long as those areas have been populated. In other words, Aboriginal Australians have continued to live in the same parts of the continent that their ancestors originally settled. This research was part of the Aboriginal Heritage Project, which hopes to help Australia's indigenous population trace their regional ancestry and their family genealogy, essentially documenting what's already been part of Aboriginal oral history and culture. But this 10-year project also has some possible future implications as well. It might help authorities repatriate artifacts to the correct Aboriginal peoples and help survivors of Australia's stolen generations reconnect with their families. As a side note, other studies released this year suggest that Australia was actually settled before the commonly cited 47,000 years ago. One team found evidence of human habitation in Booty Cave on Barrow Island, 60 kilometers off the coast of Western Australia, dating back to about 50,000 years. Another team publishing findings in the journal Nature concluded that a sandstone rock shelter in Northern Territory was inhabited 65,000 years ago. So this work with the Aboriginal Heritage Project has basically confirmed what Aboriginal Australians were already saying, which is like, our people have been living in this place for tens of thousands of years. A genetic study of Northwest North America reached incredibly similar conclusions about the indigenous residents of southern Alaska and the western coast of British Columbia. Mitochondrial DNA analysis revealed that indigenous people living in these areas today are descended from the region's first inhabitants about 10,000 years ago. And also in British Columbia, archaeologists have confirmed what the Hiltzak Nation's oral history has maintained, that the Hiltzak Nation moved to a small area of land that never froze during the Ice Age and survived there for the duration. Archaeologists carefully excavated the area and found that, yes, there were artifacts dating back 14,000 years, at which point glaciers were covering much of the surrounding landmass, but not that particular area the Hiltzak Nation is hopeful that the findings will support the nation's claims in any future negotiations about land rights and other legal issues in the area. So now we're moving on to a a category, like a subcategory of that one called, we probably told you so. Yeah. These are things that may pan out to be an I told you so. Yeah. Uh, so, like we said, there's some ongoing research that might, once it's done, move these to the We Told You So pile. The Beotuk were an indigenous people in Newfoundland, with the last known member dying in a hospital in 1829. A strand of that person's hair has been passed down through the family of the doctor... Who treated her for tuberculosis. So it's not actually possible to extract DNA from that hair, which is missing its root. But researchers were able to extract some DNA from the remains of several Biotech people, along with some of the maritime archaic people, which were a prehistoric Newfoundland culture. And they did this after seeking permission from the First Nations and Inuit peoples in this area. Currently, this work is trying to trace the origins of these peoples and their family tree both in and outside of Newfoundland. But it could potentially confirm whether people living today have some Beotok ancestry. Yeah, it's one of the things where the people living there today have said we are descended from the people who are of this culture. It's not a culture that completely disappeared. And so this is research that might uh, confirm that. Following a similar theme, North America's ancestral Puebloans are often described as an ancient people that no longer exists. But some modern Puebloans maintained the ancestral Puebloans didn't die out, they just moved. Archaeologists and anthropologists have been trying to verify this idea while also respecting tribes' reluctance to have DNA analysis performed on ancient human remains. So what they've done is turn to the bones of animals that the ancient Puebloans domesticated, specifically turkeys. Using mitochondrial DNA analysis, they studied turkey bones from Mesa Verde in southwestern Colorado, which was the ancestral Puebloans' homeland. And they compared it to the turkeys near the Rio Grande region, where modern Puebloans say that their ancestors eventually relocated. Until about the year 1280, the two groups of turkeys did not have anything in common. But then after 1280, turkeys in the Rio Grande had haplogroups that had previously been found only in the Mesa Verde turkeys. I just have to say, I think this is the most ingenious way to approach this problem. Like, that's... Somebody is very smart to have come up with this. Uh, and it is obviously preliminary. But a reasonable explanation would be that the ancestral Puebloans moved from Mesa Verde to the Rio Grande area around 1280, bringing their domesticated turkeys with them. A separate study, it's not strictly related to where whether anyone will ever get to say we told you so, uh, looked at the Puebloan building methods in Mesa Verde, specifically at the Sun Temple, which date back, dates back to about the year 1200. Research led by Dr. Sherry Towers at the Arizona State University Simon A. Levin Mathematical, Computational, and Modeling Sciences Center has shown that there's a lot of mathematical complexity that went into building this structure, especially considering that the Pabloans who built it didn't at the time have a written language or a number system. So the team is now hoping to figure out whether a standard unit of measure that they pieced together from this evidence was also used in other Pabloan sites as well. And we're going to close out this part of our unearthed with a few assorted tidbits that are relevant to past episodes of the show. In 2015, we talked about an unearthed photo believed to be of Billy the Kid playing croquet, which was purchased at a junk shop. Making headlines this year was another purported Billy the Kid pic, this time seated next to Pat Garrett, who was the man who would eventually kill him. The picture is a tintype bought by North Carolina lawyer Frank Abrams in 2011, and it made headlines this year because of estimates that it might be worth millions of dollars. A mass grave connected to the wreck of the Batavia was found on Beacon Island in November. The grave contains the remains of 10 people, but the site itself suggests that they were buried respectfully and thoughtfully. So, if you don't recall from our past episodes on the Batavia, this eventually turned into a horrifying massacre. So, researchers believe that these were people who died in the immediate aftermath of the wreck before things got so bad, rather than later after the massacre happened. And this year, uh, we did a two-part podcast on Executive Order 9066 and the mass incarceration of Japanese-Americans during World War II. And one of the things that we discussed in that and other podcasts was that the Japanese population of Hawaii was much too large to incarcerate everyone. So in Hawaii, Japanese-Americans were subject to restrictions on fishing, curfews, and other efforts to restrict their movement. Some of the Japanese population of Hawaii were incarcerated, though. Many were people who were influential in the community, people like business leaders, clergy, and other prominent citizens. Honolulu Internment Center on Oahu was one of 17 such incarceration sites, it was the largest incarceration camp in Hawaii, and it was used for Japanese Americans as well as for prisoners of war from other countries. Hanuliuli was designated as a National Historic Monument in 2015, and excavation work began in 2016. It has continued on through this year with students participating in the research through coursework at University of Hawaii, West Oahu. That reminds me a little bit of the ongoing archaeology classes at Harvard. We talked to folks from that on the show before. Uh, Last up in today's uh, part of our unearthed two-parter, A cold case team led by filmmaker Tom Colbert got its hands on a letter purportedly from D.B. Cooper that they say confirms an FBI cover-up. But the FBI has not reopened the case, which it closed last year. This letter was allegedly sent to newspapers after the hijacking, which would confirm that D.B. Cooper did survive, and it was obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. So we'll have... More unearthed on our next episode. We sure will. But in the meantime, Tracy, do you have a little bit of listener mail to top this one off? I do. It's another one about our uh, recent episode on the Aberfan disaster, and it is from Christina. Christina says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I just finished listening to your recent podcast on the Aberfan disaster and was struck by the similarities to an American tragedy in 1972 just six short years later. It occurred in Logan County, West Virginia, and had a similar story to what happened in Wales. The Pittston Coal Company had a coal slurry, a mixture of solid and liquid coal waste, and palment Dam that burst, sending 132 million gallons of black wastewater into the Buffalo Creek Hollow. The waves reached over 30 feet high as they descended on 16 coal towns. Of a population of 5,000, 125 people were killed, 1,121 injured, and over 4,000 left homeless. Following this, the company claimed the dam failing was an act of God, though a commission determined the company was at fault and guilty of murder. The state and hundreds of survivors sued and received millions of damages. I visited Logan County in 2008 on a service trip it's an old county rich in Appalachian culture and struggling with poverty and substance abuse. Though physical remnants of the disaster are gone, every resident vividly knows or remembers the flood. There have been studies into the psychological toll the disaster placed on the survivors. I highly recommend the book, Everything in Its Path, Destruction of Community in the Buffalo Creek Flood by sociologist Kite Erickson. As always, thank you for your work educating people and sharing your passions for history. Best. Christina, thank you so much for this email, Christina. Um, I wanted to share it. We've gotten a couple of emails about similar mining disasters to the one that happened in Aberfan that were mostly about landslides or burst dams, et cetera, that uh, had a similarly tragic effect. So I'm not going to read all of them, but I did want to read this one. So thank you so much, Christina. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast or history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com, we're also all over social media under the name Missed in History. So that's where you'll find our Facebook, our Pinterest, our Instagram, our Twitter. Our Pinterest is where we keep an unearthed board every year, which is where I keep up with this stuff all year long so we can talk about it at the end of the year. Uh, you can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, and you will find show notes of all the episodes Holly and I have done together that you will also find... Uh, an archive of every episode we have ever done. And you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, anywhere else you listen to podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn
1: more. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the Kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.